0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So let's go ahead and look at the ongoing story, true history, Acts chapter 6, verse 8, up to chapter 7, verse 8. I called the message today, Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And I put part one because Stephen actually is one of the main characters in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7, which is a very long chapter, and then really the beginning of chapter 8. So we're going to get a few sermons on Stephen and how God used him. But to bring you up to speed, let me do a quick review of the book of Acts so you have the big context of what we've already covered. Acts chapter 1, the ascension of the Son. Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes to you. Acts chapter 3, a crippled beggar is set free. Acts chapter 4, John and Peter preach some more. Acts chapter 5, Ananias takes a dive. Acts chapter 6, Stephen is about to get the fix. Acts chapter 7, I'll tell you next week. So let's look at Acts chapter 6. So we covered Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7 last week, where there was really the first big dispute in the church. This church, by the way, in Acts chapter 6 now, is over 20,000 people in the first church of Jerusalem. 20,000 people with 12 pastors, 12 elders, The 20,000. What's that like? Well, go to the Warriors game and put 12 guys down on the court and then look in the stands at the 20,000 people in the stands like, okay, 12 guys, you're in charge of those 20,000 people organize the church, make sure everyone is taken care of, make sure everyone has a shepherd. I mean, can you imagine the monumental logistical undertaking that was assigned to those 12 men? And you could see naturally how problems would arise. That's what was last week. Some people weren't being taken care of. They were being neglected. And God intervened, giving wisdom to the apostles, the leadership of the church, to bring on more leaders and more servants to help manage The church God's way and God blessed in leading and solving that problem. That's where we leave off. And so they were asked, the twelve apostles, choose some men who are qualified among you to help with these practical logistical tasks and the congregation chose seven men. They had specific qualifications. One of the first qualifications was look for men in your midst in the Christian congregation of good repute who have a solid, solid godly reputation. And Stephen was one of these seven men. So Stephen was well-known early on in this very young church. Stephen. He was Hellenistic. In other words, he spoke Greek primarily. He may have been kind of an outsider, and not necessarily a native or indigenous to Jerusalem where the Jewish Hebrew Aramaic speakers were. But Stephen made a huge impact very quickly in the early church. He's just a godly man and a man of repute. He's also noted for being full of wisdom and full of the spirit of God. And we're going to see manifestations of his impeccable character here in chapter 6 and chapter 7. So Stephen was chosen as one of these seven helpers, these quasi-deacons, to assist in ministering to the 20,000 early Christians. And so he is at the first of the list of the seven men. That's where where we're introduced to Stephen. And now verse 8 will pick up with Stephen, who was just briefly introduced as someone who would help serve tables, be a servant of the people in a practical way, distributing some of the money that had been collected through the benevolence fund or whatever they called it. Uh, to give to the needy, to the poor, to the widows. And Stephen was a part of managing that. So he had management oversight in that regard. But that isn't all that Stephen did. He wasn't just a waiter who tended tables and gave out money. He had more of a widespread ministry. And we will learn about that in verse 8 and following. So we're just going to cover about 15 verses. We'll start chapter 6, verse 8, picking up with this man, Stephen. And then we see the trouble that he gets into. Uh, three points that I have there regarding Stephen that leads up really to his arrest by the Jewish leaders. So let's look at the first point, which is just verse eight. And I put there Stephen's supposed offense, S- Stephen's supposed offense. He did something wrong. He didn't, he didn't really do anything wrong. Actually, he's just obeying God. But the Jewish leadership who opposed Christ, who killed Jesus, they haven't come to faith. They run the show. They are in charge. They manage the religion of Jerusalem. They oversee the temple. They oversee the sacrifices. They wield all the power. They run the Supreme Court, all 71 members of the Sanhedrin. They have their man in place called the high priest. They call all the shots. They hate Jesus. They had him killed. Now only three to four months later, maybe six months later at most, they still have great Animosity towards Jesus, Jesus Christ, his disciples, just the very name of Jesus infuriates the opposition to Christians, these Jewish leaders who aren't believers. And so they are watching their temple be invaded by these new Christians, these Jesus followers, mushrooming, growing like locusts or termites or whatever it is that they thought. Who are these Christians? What are they doing? They're speaking publicly in the temple. These apostles, we've arrested them twice already. We told them to be quiet, to shut up, to be silenced. They keep preaching. They keep speaking. They're wooing the crowds. They're attracting followers. The apostles are doing miracles that are undeniable. And so the Jewish leadership is being threatened more and more. Their power and influence is being undermined. They've already arrested Peter and John once, threatened them. Then they arrested all the twelve apostles, threatened them, beat them, released them, and they just kept on preaching. And one of those preachers was one of these proto-deacons, Stephen. What was his crime? Why did they why were they upset by them? Why did they want to shut him down, silence him, and eventually they arrest him and put him on trial? Well, His offense. Well, you can actually cross out the word supposed in the outline. It's actually Stephen's offense was biblical ministry. That's what he was doing. He was affiliated with the Church of Christ. He served other believers. He was an evangelist. He was also Jewish. He was Hellenistic, meaning he was a Greek-speaking Jew. From the passage, we're going to see that he frequented local synagogues in Jerusalem. We don't know how many synagogues there were in Jerusalem, but there were a lot. These were like Jewish schools where you go and you listen to a rabbi teach the Bible, the Old Testament, teach the scriptures. You go and learn the scriptures there. And uh, these rabbis, they were preachers, and they would preach and explain the Old Testament. But most of these synagogues were polluted with wrong interpretations of the Old Testament, and they shrouded true biblical truth with man-made Jewish traditions. And that's what Jesus criticized. That's why he got in trouble. Well, Stephen does the same thing. He's frequenting these synagogues. Several Greek-speaking synagogues, there were Jewish-speaking synagogues or Aramaic-speaking synagogues, and then there were these other synagogues that were different where the Jews were there and they met, but they spoke in Greek because there were Jews from all over the world, and Greek was the universal language, and so some of these Jews came, and they didn't, maybe they didn't even know Aramaic, but they were still Jewish. They were committed to the Torah, the Old Testament, to Yahweh. And they needed to have teaching, and so they would start their own synagogues. And they were Greek-speaking synagogues, but they were Jewish people. And so Stephen, being Hellenistic and being able to speak Greek, and apparently being recognized as a rabbi and a teacher, was having opportunity to speak and maybe even preach at many of these synagogues in Jerusalem at this time. So he wasn't just a table server. He was a preacher and a powerful proclamation, or one who proclaimed powerfully The word of God and Jesus. And so that's what he was doing. So he's going around to these synagogues in Jerusalem where mostly there was great opposition with unbelieving Jews filling these synagogues and wielded the power in these synagogues. And they were offended by Stephen. Actually, when they arrested him, they conjured up. First they arrest him and then they conjure up and come up with the crimes that he supposedly committed. First they arrest him. Then they decide, huh, oh, we got to think of something we're going to make him guilty of. So they, they actually fabricated false charges. We're going to see that in just a second, uh, saying that he was a blasphemer. And he spoke against the temple, and he spoke against Moses, and he spoke against the Torah, and he spoke against God, which was not true. That wasn't his real offense. His real offense was that he preached Jesus. Because that's what they've said two times formally already. They told the apostles, don't preach in that name. Stephen was a believer. He came to know Jesus Christ. He was a fulfilled Jew. He recognized that Jesus was the promised, the true Messiah. And God empowered him. And God filled him with the Spirit. And God empowered him with grace and the Holy Spirit. And now he was preaching like no other in the synagogue. Not only that, Stephen was gifted. According to verse eight, it says "And Stephen, full of grace and power, full of grace, meaning he was controlled by grace, the grace of God. He was a gracious man. That was a, that doesn't mean he was a wimp. The grace of God is the goodness of God, the undeserved uh, blessing of God on his life. And he was full of it. It controlled him. It exuded from his very persona, full of grace. He knew the God of grace. Personally, and he exemplified that accordingly. It controlled him, the grace of God. And he is also full of power. That's not man-made power or human power. This is supernatural divine power. This is fulfillment of Acts chapter 1.8 when Jesus told the disciples, you wait until the Spirit of God comes and he will be your supernatural power. And then you share with that power, that supernatural power from the Holy Spirit, and you will be empowered. Not only the power from the Holy Spirit Stephen had, he also had the power of the Word of God. The Word of God, the Bible, the Scripture, is supernatural power. Absolutely. The Bible says Jesus talked and said it was power. it is living it is active. Biblical truth supernatural truth that penetrates people's ears, their mind, their conscience, their heart, their soul, the deepest inner recesses of a human being. That is how powerful God's word. God's word is described as a hammer that crushes as a fire that consumes as milk and meat for the soul of a believer. There is nothing more powerful than the Bible, than Scripture. And Stephen, we're going to see as he preaches his sermon, he, he was replete with the knowledge of Scripture. It, it just rolls off of his tongue. So that's where he got his power. It was supernatural. It was not of his own strength. It was Almighty God, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the blessing of God. Verse 8, he was also performing great wonders and signs. That phrase, wonders and signs, is used to refer many times to healing, supernatural healing. So, so far, Luke has told us in the book of Acts that miracles were being done by the apostles, at the hands of the apostles, at the hands of the apostles, at the hands of the apostles. Now, for the first time, we see somebody else with this gift, Stephen. Stephen has now been granted by Almighty God, probably with the laying on of the hands of the apostles, because they just laid hands on him in chapter 6 earlier. And he represents the apostles' doctrine, Almighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He preached. He preached new truth. He preached divine revelation. And God validated Stephen's ministry and the new revelation that he was giving and also his interpretations of the Old Testament, validating his ministry with the ability to do miracles. The miracles that he did were his credentials, that he was a legitimate, valid prophet. This is what the Jews required of men who came along and said, I am a prophet, thus saith the Lord, according to Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. That God would validate a true prophet with the ability to do these amazing, unprecedented, supernatural miracles. Stephen had that ability. So here's Stephen preaching, going into the synagogues, speaking with Greek-speaking Jews, preaching Jesus in the synagogue, In in Jewish synagogues. That never goes over well. Jesus tried that one time at the beginning of his ministry in Luke 4, and they chased him out of the synagogue and tried to throw him off a, a precipice. So here is Stephen E. So his offense is that he preaches Jesus. The world finds that offensive when you name the name Jesus. I don't know why this is a surprise to Christians. We just got to keep being reminded. God has called you not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. I already read a couple weeks ago John, the promise from Jesus. That belongs in one of those precious moments, little Jesus promise books, because all those promises are good, nice promises. They're legitimate promises, but they need like one of those realistic promises, too, that ain't so nice where Jesus promised the world hates me. And Christian, the world is going to hate you, too. That is a promise. And that's what we see with Stephen. All he's doing is preaching Jesus and he gets this great resistance and opposition So that was his offense, doing biblical ministry. If you're committed to biblical ministry, if you're committed to the basic Christian life, to speaking up for Jesus, and you walk out into this world, you will be persecuted. You will be opposed. People will make fun of you. People will ostracize you. The more you do it, the more opposition you will find. That's why Peter says in his epistle, Christian, do not be surprised by this. This is the calling of the Christian life. And it's represented... And it's fulfillment here by Stephen. So that was his offense, biblical ministry. Let's go on to point number two. So Stephen's offense was that he did biblical ministry and primarily that he preached the name of Jesus, the gospel, and wanted to help people and heal people. Imagine that, being offensive. That's what Christians are doing all over the world today, going into ravaged countries, totalitarian countries, Muslim countries where Christianity is illegal and many Christians are just going in and they want to help People who are in need and they're getting persecuted for that. Just helping people. So number two, the Jews' false pretense. How do they respond to this biblical ministry of Stephen preaching? That's verses 9 through 15. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, okay? The synagogue, there could have been more than one of these synagogues. This is very interesting. Interesting. History. The synagogue of the freedmen, who's that? Well, freedmen, that was a technical class of people who were at this time in Jerusalem, freedmen, who were they? Well, years ago, these were who, people who were once prisoners of Rome and then at some point let go and allowed to have their freedom. That's who they were, these freedmen. They were former prisoners. They were Jews. They were incarcerated and jailed by Romans, and then released. Well, when did this happen? Well, from the history books, uh, Pompey, Roman general, military man, politician, in the days of Julius Caesar, Pompey, in around 63 B.C., he had a campaign that went right down the gut of Judea and through Jerusalem. And, and while he was doing that, he was on a rampage, killing Jews and taking Jews prisoner. And he did, took some of them back to Rome. Then eventually, as years went by and Pompey died, and these Jews, not all of them were killed, some of them were just taken as prisoners, they were let go and allowed to be free. And then they got married and they had children. So you had this growing population of Jews in certain areas and pockets of Rome. And they were given freedom after that. And then they began to distribute themselves all over Rome and countries related and close by and in proximity to Rome. And so that's who these freed men are. That was their history and their lineage. And because they were in Rome, they were Hellenized. They spoke Greek, and their children spoke Greek, and their grandchildren, that was their main language, was Greek. And they went back to the Mecca of Jerusalem where the temple was, at some and they actually started synagogues there, Greek-speaking Jewish synagogues. And so that's who these people are. These are new opponents of Christianity than we saw in earlier chapters. And the synagogues represented included both Syrians and Alexandrians. That's uh, two cities that were in North Africa right on the sea, in Egypt and Libya. And so they made their way over to Jerusalem. Eventually they started their own synagogue, the African synagogue that spoke Greek and they were Jews and then they were also from Cilicia and Asia and so that's up north modern-day Turkey Asia Minor Asia on the west coast and then it says there at the end of verse 9 Cilicia uh, Cilicia Asia Cilicia was kind of on the east coast Cilicia had the city of Tarsus and that's where the apostle Paul was born and from That's interesting. So the Apostle Paul was born there, migrated, Greek speaker, but also a Jew. Moved to the area of Jerusalem, rose in prominence, studied under Gamaliel, knew Greek fluently, knew Hebrew, knew Aramaic. Could very well be he was from Cilicia and frequented this synagogue. Could very well be that when Stephen was there preaching in the synagogue in Jerusalem with representatives from Cilician Asia, it could very well be that Saul of Tarsus was there and was offended by the message in the gospel of Jesus that Stephen was preaching. Vehemently opposed. That's not just speculation because we know Saul is here because he ends up in chapter 7 at the end of the chapter. Saul, he is introduced, and later on when he is arrested and gives testimony, and he says, I used to be a Christian killer in Acts chapter 21, and he mentions Stephen by name. He knew who Stephen was. Could very well be that. How could Luke, a, sec, a later generation of Christians, not a first-hand witness of all this stuff? How could Luke pen the entire sermon that Stephen gives in Acts chapter seven if Luke wasn't there? Where did he get the information? Could very well be that he got it from Saul of Tarsus, who became a Christian, who was the Apostle Paul, who was a friend of Luke. Could very well be that Luke gave this through oral transmission to Luke, and through the Spirit of God, it was preserved without error. That's very possible. So anyway, here's Stephen interacting. He's going from synagogue to synagogue, and they are not responding well because at the end of verse 9, it says some men rose up. Actually, the verse begins verse 9. Some men rose up. So Stephen's preaching. They rose up. Literally, they got up on their feet, shut this guy down. It says they men they got up, men, and it says they rose up at the end of verse 9, and they argued with Stephen. They disputed. They debated. They took him to task. Uh, You don't know what you're talking about. You're misrepresenting the Old Testament. You're undermining Jewish theology. You're undermining uh, the teachings of the fathers and the traditions that we hold so dear. And they're going at it toe-to-toe. Verse 10, and Stephen didn't back down at all he was full of grace and power which means he was filled with courage when you think of being filled with the Holy Spirit what does that mean that means being controlled by the Spirit of God and so what does that mean well that means you exude you exhibit you are controlled by the fruits of the Spirit Galatians 5 just read and see what it says and power to be filled with the Holy Spirit when I think of that and power I think that that means that Stephen had no fear he was in the minority He's putting himself in danger. They are taking him on publicly face to face. He has no fear. And he's got incredible courage and boldness. He doesn't back down. He's not going to let them shut him down. So he he, he's disputing with them from Scripture, verse 10 in the the revelation that God had given in verse 10, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, which is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 when he told his disciples, okay, I'm going to leave, and you're going to go out, you're going to represent me, you're going to preach, and you are going to find resistance at times, and... People are actually going to arrest you and bring you on trial, but do not fear them and do not worry ahead about what you are going to say because the Spirit of God at that moment will tell you what to say. And God will give you supernatural wisdom. They will not know how to respond to you, says the Gospel of Luke. Matthew 10 and the Gospel of Luke. Jesus predicted this would happen. That is exactly what happened with Stephen. They come up. I mean, that was spontaneous. This spontaneous, overwhelming resistance. They stand up. They're moving in on him. They're about to attack him. They are yelling. They are screaming. He does not back down. He stands there, feet planted with faith in God, the Lord Jesus Christ, power, courage, arguing from the scriptures. The Spirit of God is giving him spontaneous truth to tell them, to confound them, to confute their arguments. They have no response. How do you respond and argue with the truth? When it is from God. Unbelievers in human wisdom can't argue with scripture. God is the most logical mind in the, in the world. And so that, that's true of scripture. When you argue accurately from scripture, no one can refute you. And it gets frustrating for the antagonist. It gets frustrating for the unbeliever. And so what do they do? They will always resort, when they, if they can't win the upper hand through the argument... Because they can't defy God's logic in Scripture, they will usually resort to deception or violence in all of its forms to various degrees. And that is exactly what they do with Stephen. And that is exactly what antagonistic unbelievers do today. And so that's what they're going to try to do with Stephen. Verse 10, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit. See, it's it's not his own words. It's not his own wisdom. He is depending upon the spirit of God. With which he was speaking, so they are getting infuriated. They can't, they can't out argue him. Verse eleven. So, wow, what do they resort to? They deception. So then they secretly induced men to say. So they go out and they recruit culpable, willing, deceptive partners. And they give them a canned statement to say, okay, you need to say, you, need to, you need to say this public statement and make this accusation against Stephen. We need you to say this because we need to find him in guilty. We need to arrest him. We need to put him on trial. We need to shut him down. So that's what's going on in verse 11. So they secretly, indu- so this is totally illegitimate. They, you know, this is what they did with Jesus in Matthew 26 starting at verse 59. It says they arrested him, and then they were trying to get, it says they kept trying to get false witnesses when they arrested Jesus at the hands of Judas. At night, in the dark, with no one around and watching, this is totally not even legitimate or legal, they shuffle him off to Caiaphas' house at night. First they put him before Annas, father-in-law, then they bring him to Caiaphas, then they put him on trial. And it says they, they kept bringing in witnesses one after the other after the other and to try to mit, come up with a false accusation against Jesus. And some of these witnesses were coached. And they couldn't get a witness where it would stick because Deuteronomy said you had to have the testimony of two or three witnesses that agreed. And so they kept having these conflicting witnesses when they were trying to Pegged Jesus during that trial. And finally, they actually got two guys that were able to agree. They were false witnesses. They had been coached. They made up a story. They twisted Jesus's words. The beginning of Jesus's ministry in John chapter two, Jesus said publicly at the temple, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. That was at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. But Jesus was talking about his body, his physical body. Metaphorically, that's what he meant. And so they took those words Oh, Jesus, he threatened to destroy our blessed holy temple that has the residing glory of God. That's blasphemy. That warrants the penalty of death. And so in Matthew 26, that was what two false witnesses came up and agreed upon. And they said it publicly to the Sanhedrin, to Caiaphas. Boom, there it is. We've got him. He is guilty. That is blasphemy, death penalty. And that is exactly what's being replicated here with Stephen. Getting witnesses to agree on a charge that would stick, and it has to do with the same thing—the temple. What Stephen thought of it, what Stephen taught about it, and also what Stephen said about Jesus regarding the temple, twisting his words. So they secretly induced men to say, "We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God." Moses is the Torah, the Old Testament. Uh, actually, the first five books of the Old Testament. We've heard Stephen undermine and malign the Torah. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. That was one of the main charges. Stephen doesn't believe in the Bible. Stephen wants to undermine the Mosaic law. That's the charge. And also, Stephen speaks blasphemy against God. That's very generic. We don't know exactly what he said. Stephen has the wrong view of Yahweh. So that's why in Stephen's speech, he talks much of Yahweh, who truly is. Verse 12. Not only did they secretly come up with false charges against Stephen, it says verse 12 that they stirred up the people, the crowd. So they already, you know, the church was, had a great reputation with the people in Jerusalem until now. For the first time, unbelievers are now going to question the reputation of the church and some of its leaders like Stephen from gossip and twisting the truth. Very effective. If you, if you just keep repeating, you know, politicians know this, by the way. If you just keep repeating a lie again and again and again and again and again with a big megaphone, eventually the masses will believe it. That's how it works, and that's what they did with Stephen. So they stirred up the people. Start there. Okay, boy, we got the people on our side now. Crucify him! crucify him! they're thinking. Uh, then they stirred up the elders. These are the Jewish guys that run the temple. The Jewish guys, not the Greek-speaking guys, who had the authority and the, the power to arrest Stephen. And the scribes, they were the masters of the law. The, if the accusation is that Stephen misrepresents the law, we need the scribes on our side to show how Stephen misrepresents the Bible. And they were successful. And when they were able to do that, false accusations stir up the people, stir up the elders, stir up the scribes, then they came up upon him. They snuck, I mean, they just sprung upon him literally and just arrested him literally and they dragged him away and brought him before the Sanhedrin to court. Nothing legitimate about it. Verse 13. Then they put forward the charges. What are they? Well, they were false charges from false witnesses who said, and here's one of the formal charges. This man, Stephen, incessantly speaks against this holy place in the law. He speaks against the temple. That's what they said about Jesus. And he speaks against the law. That's what they said about Jesus as well. Same lie. Verse 14. Get more specific. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, this Nazarene, this Nazarene. That's a phrase of utter dispersion. This, this Nazarene, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. The Messiah doesn't come from Nazareth. The Messiah comes from Jerusalem and Judah and Bethlehem, not Nazareth. This Nazarene, this imposter, this phony, this guy that was crucified four months ago, Jesus. We've heard Stephen say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this temple. And alter the customs and get rid of our sacrifices and our traditions, which Moses handed down to us. So that's the false charge. Well, Stephen never said that Jesus would destroy the temple, literally. Stephen probably was reiterating the statement that Jesus made, destroy this, destroy me, kill me, and in three days I will raise myself up again. And they twisted the meaning of that. So they put him on trial. They're at the Sanhedrin, 71 Jews. And they made, usually made the, the prisoners stand while they sat in their cushy, plush seats in a semicircle up there. And they put him on trial in verse 15. And here's what this is an amazing thing. This was the grace of God. And fixing their gaze upon him, Stephen, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin saw Stephen's face like the face of an angel. That is amazing. The face of it. Uh, we don't know if it was glowing, but it was apparent to all. It's like wow. There was some kind of a radiance coming and emanating from Stephen that was just inexplicable. And that's what they saw, the face of an angel. What is Stephen being criticized of? Not, not believing in the Old Testament, not believing in the writings of Moses. And immediately you think of someone's face shining, you think of Moses who came down from the mountain, his face shining. So here they are accusing him, you don't believe in Moses. And then God allows him to look like Moses in his glory. The face of an angel. So everything about it was false. It was a pretense. There was nothing legitimate about the trial whatsoever. So did Stephen back down and cower over and say, okay, I, or, or protest? Say, what are you doing? How come you're arresting me? What about my family? This is unfair. I didn't have a legitimate trial. He's not doing that. As I was reading this, one thing that jumped out at me is the total composure that Stephen has in the midst of a spontaneous trial like this. This is very hard for people to do. We can't do this in our own strength. I mean, think about a, a, a trial, a tragedy, some kind of spontaneous thing that comes your way you didn't expect that is devastating or tries you. Usually people freak out and they don't have their senses about them and they're responding and reacting emotionally. They're not thinking straight. I think about when we went through an earthquake in Southern California years ago. And it just hit us, hit us at 4.31 a.m. in the morning. I mean, I can still remember the time. Yes, because I still have nightmares about it. But anyway, massive earthquake, and I just reacted emotionally. There wasn't a whole lot of rational thinking going on. There was, there was no composure. It was run for my life. And that's pretty much how everybody else was responding as well. You don't see that with Stephen. This is amazing. Absolute composed composure and the peace of God. So uh, after the pretense is Stephen's public defense. So let's go ahead and look at it, verses 1 through 8, his public defense where he begins to speak as he is formally on trial. By the way, he speaks all throughout chapter 7. Look at how long chapter 7 is. He goes on for 53 verses. We're just taking a section What he does here in this very long chapter, it's amazing. He actually answers the charges that they brought against him. He is taking the liberty to use the court to his advantage to speak the truth. Here's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So he is defending himself against these false charges, among other things. Thematically, the way it's broken down. Basically, this is a history lesson of the Bible. You are you are accusing me of not believing the Bible. You're accusing me of not believing the writings of Moses. And so this whole discourse is the history of Israel as recorded in the Old Testament Scriptures. That he is giving from memory with unbelievable detail and accuracy. And he does it in chronological order. And basically what they're doing is they're accusing him really of not being a pure Jew. Because if you were a pure Jew, you wouldn't talk about doing away with the Old Testament and the Mosaic law. If you were a pure Jew, you wouldn't talk about worshiping God apart from the temple. Because the true God always deals with his people through the building of the temple. Because God is confined to a building. I mean, these are some of the implicit arguments they're making against him and so he begins to refute them and so he does it chronologically and thematically chronologically he starts with abraham who's the first jew you're basically saying i am not a jew a pure jew and so what does he do he starts by talking about the first jew which is abraham and he quotes from the first jew who was abraham And he also is showing that we are fellow Jews. I am a Jew. I am on trial. You are putting me on trial. You are. Jew We are brothers in the religion of the Old Testament. We are brothers ethnically through the loins of Abraham. You are putting you are accusing a follow, a fellow brother Jew, descendant son of Abraham. And you are in the majority. I am in the minority just because I'm in the minority doesn't mean I am wrong. And let me show you from the Old Testament why that is so. So he starts with Abraham, the first Jew. Then he goes chronologically, verse 8, and then he introduces Isaac, mentions his name. And then Isaac had a son. His name was Jacob, the end of verse 8. Then Jacob had 12 sons. They were called the patriarchs, the end of verse 8. Then he talks about one of the patriarchs who was Joseph. And that's Joseph is the topic from chapter 7, verse 9 to verse 16. Joseph, you are a kid. just because Jesus was in the minority among the Jews, you think he was wrong and a heretic? Just because fellow Jews turned on Jesus, the Jew, means he was wrong. Let me tell you about Joseph, who was a Jew, who was in the minority, and his brothers turned on him, wanted to kill him. Yet Joseph was in the right. So there's precedent in history. The majority doesn't always rule. You say, I'm in the minority just because I am one Jew among you, seventy-one? Let me remind you of Joseph, who was in the minority. And then he goes on and talks about Moses, verse 17 and following. He talks about Moses a lot, 17, all the way up to verse 43. So I am, I am wrong because I'm in the minority among fellow Jews. Jesus was wrong because he was in the minority among fellow Jews. Let me tell you not only about Joseph, who was in the minority, yet he was the spokesman of God. Let me tell you about Moses, who was in the minority among two million Jews, who relentlessly for 40 years turned on him. Yet he was the most humble man of God in his day. He was the very prophet of God. This echoes the theme of Jesus where he rebuked the Pharisees all the time. You who have murdered the prophets since righteous Abel all the way down to Zechariah. Just like you're about to kill me, the Lord Jesus. Just the way they're about to kill Stephen who was a prophet of God. This is what the Jews have done throughout history. So that's basically the essence of his argument. And also they accused him of defiling the temple, and he's going to talk about the temple. But let's just look at the first eight verses where he talks about Abraham, the first Jew, knitting his lineage back to the first legitimate Jew, which was Abraham, and that's what he's doing here in his defense. So the high priest, probably Caiaphas, who ruled for many years, the same Caiaphas who put Jesus on trial and had him executed, The same Caiaphas who arrested Peter and James and the apostles and beat them. He was evil to the core. The same Caiaphas who actually spoke a true prophecy about Jesus in John chapter 11. Unwittingly. That same Caiaphas. He's the high priest. Verse 1. And he says, are these things so? These charges leveled against you. Verse 2. So he's allowed to speak. So at least they let him speak. So Stephen begins and he said, Hear me. Hear me, brethren and fathers. This is what Paul does when he's on trial a little later in the book of Acts. This was a a phrase of respect. Brethren, fellow Jews, I am one with you. At least in our history. Our identity with Abraham. Our professed belief in the law of Moses. Brethren. And then also fathers because these men are probably older. Many men on the Sanhedrin were older. So he's showing great deference and respect he's not defiant in the court even though he's there illegitimately he is respecting authority even twisted perverted authority because he wants to honor god with his life hear me brothers and fathers the god of glory The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. This is just a powerful statement. The God of glory, the God of glory, uh, the glory that speaks of the, the presence of God, the immediate Shekinah presence of Almighty God. God doesn't have a body. The Jews knew that he was a spirit. He was infinite. He was transcendent. He wasn't confined to a building. And so he starts off right away. God is not confined to a temple or a building. He's the God of glory. He's bigger than creation. The God of glory is one of his titles in the Old Testament. He appeared, by the way, not only just to Jews before he appeared to any Jew, he appeared to a pagan named Abraham. Actually, Abram. In Mesopotamia, 875 is when God appeared to Abram, the pagan idol worshiper. Appeared to him in a theophany, spoke to him introduced himself as the creator and judge of the universe, and then commissioned Abram to do something very specific and follow. And Abram did. Immediately responded, left everything, left his home in Ur the Chaldees, over there by modern-day Iraq, traveled hundreds of miles on foot, not even knowing what was ahead of him as he walked in faith. So the God of glory appeared to our father, the, the first Jew, Abram, when he was a Mesopotamia, not here in Israel, Mesopotamia pagan Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And God said to Abram, leave it. Now, this is interesting. They just accused Stephen of not believing in the Mosaic law or the Pentateuch or the book of Moses or the Torah. And Stephen is going to proceed to quote the words of Moses uh, over 12 times, just in this short section, showing he, he knows Moses, he believes in Moses. So he begins to quote, Moses' writings of Israelite history. And God said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. That was Genesis 12. So Abram obeyed this God, verse 4, and then he left the land of the Chaldeans and he settled in Haran. So he goes up north and he's there for a while. And from there, after his father Terah died, God had Abram move to this country going down to the, which would be the promised land or Palestine. And he took his wife Sarai and Lot and all of his belongings with him on this very long trek because of a promise that God had made to Abram, verse 5. But when God gave him no inheritance in the land of Palestine, not even a foot of ground, so God said, I'm going to give that land, the promised land, to your descendants. I'm not giving it to you, Abraham. In other words, you're literally not going to own a foot of it. You're not going to own a square foot of the land of Palestine the entire time you're alive. You won't own anything to live on. Eventually, Abram would, would buy a lot of land to bury his wife. It was a cemetery. But he bought it. God didn't give it to him. He bought it. He paid for it. Other than that, he, he was a, a nomad. Always wandering, tent to tent. Looking for green grass to feed his sheep. So he never he's just relying on a promise that God had given him. God's gonna give my descendants, my offspring this land. But I would never see any of it. That is a great faith. That's why he's commended in the New Testament as a man of great faith. Uh, but God gave him no inheritance in this promised land, not even a foot of ground, yet even when he had no child. So God appears to him at age 75 and says, I'm going to give the land to your descendants, which means to have descendants, you need to have children. He is married to Sarah. They are 75 years old, and they have no children because his wife, who is 65, she is barren. She can't have babies. Then at age 86... And we are reminded, he still doesn't have any children. And at age 99, Abraham still doesn't have any children. And yet God said at age 75 to Abraham, I'm going to give the promised land to your descendants. And the first thing you need for descent is babies. So again, Abraham is walking by faith. I'm just going to have to trust God. <laughs> Apparently, sometime my old, my old wife is going to have a baby. And he kind of wavered on that at times. But in the end, he was a man of faith and believed God was going to give him a baby through the loins of his wife, Sarah. It didn't happen until he was 100 years old. So he's going to get an inheritance. Verse 5, uh, gave him no inheritance, uh, promised to give him a possession. Descendants after him. Verse 6, but God spoke to this effect. But God spoke to this effect. So Stephen is saying, here's what God said, and then he quotes Scripture. So in Stephen's mind, when Scripture spoke, God spoke. When the Bible spoke, God spoke. That's our view of Scripture. What Scripture says is what God says. So God spoke to this effect in verse 6, and he quotes from Mosaic Law again, and His Abraham's descendants would be aliens in a foreign land. This is Genesis 15, and they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. So that was a prophecy God gave Abraham. You know, in the future, your descendants are going to be uh, enslaved in a foreign land. That was That happened in Egypt. And they were in Egypt for 400 years, and they became enslaved, and then Moses had to set them free. So this was a prophecy that was fulfilled. God told them about it ahead of time. Verse 7, and whatever nation, which would be Egypt, to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge. I will judge the Egyptians, he did, with 10 plagues and then letting them free. And God said, and after that, they will come out, and they did. And for 40 years in the desert, then they went into the promised land. And they will serve me in this place, in the land of Israel, in the promised land. So here's Stephen recounting accurately in great detail Old Testament history. Verse 8, and he gave, and God gave Abram the covenant of circumcision. Now, God called Abram when he was 75 years old. He was an idol worshiper. He was a pagan. Then he was introduced to the true God, and he came to know this true God. So he was introduced at age 75, but it wasn't until he was 86 years old where he believed and got saved, and God made him righteous. So 11 years went by. And he believed the word of God and it was counted to him as righteousness at age 86. And he became the prototype of salvation by grace through faith, at least one of them in the Old Testament. And after that, they will come out and serve. Uh, And then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. So God was making all these promises throughout the life of Abraham, starting at age 75. But it wasn't until... Abraham turned 99 years old, Kate called him at age 75, told him about the land, saved him at age 86, told him about the land, but not until age 99 where God finally used the word covenant for the first time. And that's Genesis 17, where 10 times in that chapter, God mentions the covenant. I will establish my covenant with you, the sign with you. You're already saved. You already know me, but now we'll validate this. You don't get circumcised to be saved. You get circumcised because you are saved. And this will be the sign of the covenant. And it will be everlasting. It will be everlasting. It will be everlasting. And it was circumcision. And that was the outward sign of this covenant that God had made with Abraham and the Jews and his descendants. So the land that I'm giving you, the land that God owned, God is the creator. He owns everything. He created the land of Israel where it is. And he gave it. To the Jewish people, he gave it to the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, which are the Jews, which are the Israelites. And that is still true today. And it will be true in the future. The book of Revelation tells us how God will resume his faithfulness to his covenant that he made to the Jews, the people of Israel, and they will inherit all the blessings and promises regarding the land of Israel still in the future, primarily in the millennium that is yet to come. God still has a plan for the Jews and the Israelites. This is true history. This, is, this also jumped out at me as I'm studying this and reading this. This is accurate history about Palestine, the land of the Jews, and the history of Israel, and it impacts our world view today. Because it is amazing how many Americans are just absolutely clueless. And they are influenced through wrong sources and through deception and lies. And one of the prominent ones is the Palestinians, actually which was started by Yasser Arafat in 1964, before I was born. He was a terrorist. He was born in Egypt. He was an Arab-speaking Muslim. He did all kinds of terrorist activities. He spearheaded a terrorist attack against the Olympic team of Israel in 1972 in Munich. Speaking of the Summer Olympics, were 11... People on the Israeli Olympic team were slaughtered. first they were taken hostage during the Olympics. Can you imagine all those athletes having a great time in the Olympic village? And Yasser Arafat has a plan, grandiose plan, where 11 of the team from Israel was taken hostage and then they were slaughtered and killed. So that was their venom they had towards the. It's the same kind of venom that these unbelievers have towards Stephen. And it goes on today. I don't know if you've been reading the news on the Olympics all week long. It's in the, it's in the newspaper every day or on, in the articles of how the Israeli Olympic team is being harassed every single day. Viciously so. And mainstream news outlet, they're not talking about it. You have to dig for it. So he gave them the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. And then he's, because he, because Now he wants to introduce Joseph, a servant of God, a prophet of God in the minority who was rejected by his fellow Jewish brothers the same way Jesus was rejected and scorned and the same way The apostles were rejected by their fellow Jews in the same way I, Stephen, a fellow Jew, am being rejected by you. This is the last opportunity for that Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. After this, God is going to kind of dust off his hands, shake the dust off his feet. You know what? I've been gracious. I've been patient. I keep pleading with you, the Jewish people. You keep rejecting my servants. You keep rejecting Jesus and the gospel. Now I am going to turn to the Gentiles. And I'm going to do it through number one persecutor of Christians, Saul of Tarsus. So Stephen serves as a bridge from God's early ministry to Jerusalem and the Jewish people. And he is a bridge now to the Gentiles. And God is going to do great things. And by the way, Stephen, we're going to see he is not only arrested, maligned. He is murdered in cold blood on the spot. And then all of a sudden, a huge, unprecedented, unmitigated persecution just explodes on the scene. No holes barred, and they and now all these Jews, they are going that are not believers, every Christian is a free target. And they literally chase a majority of the Christians out of the city of Jerusalem and out of the entire area, and, they, and these Christians spread all over the then-known world which was God's providential way of fulfilling his promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I'll get you there one way or another. And one of the ways he does it is through persecution. With that, let's go ahead and pray together. Thanking God for his word. Father, we do thank you for your word, the Bible, the truth of Scripture. Thank you for... A model like Stephen from 2,000 years ago who still is an incredible model for us to stand up in the power of your spirit, the power of your word, courage without fear, having no fear of man but only fearing you, a holy God, refuting error with the truth of Scripture as we proclaim the blessed name of the Lord Jesus. God, help All believers here this morning to do that in a way that pleases you and is faithful to you and any Christians that are under duress for any reason at any degree from resistance and persecution, that you would bless them, encourage them, be gracious to them as well. And we thank you for this day as we commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.